Amen. All right, if you turn back with me to that text that we read for our scripture reading tonight, 1 John chapter number 2. Uh, tonight we're going to begin a, a multi-week exposition on study of 1 John chapter 2 with a, an overriding subject or theme of assurance. Uh, tonight we're going to introduce this particular chapter uh, by asking a question. Uh, simply, assurance... Why is it lost? Assurance, why is it lost? What I certainly am not saying is salvation. Why is it lost? I'm saying assurance, why is it lost? Now we all here tonight, and maybe uh, with the exception of a few who maybe have not been brought to a full understanding of this, should be in agreement that salvation cannot be lost. Uh, you cannot lose your salvation under any circumstances. Is it possible for a true child of God to lose their salvation? However, it is possible for you to have seasons and periods of your life where your assurance seems to be wavering. Uh, we could talk about a lot of different subjects tonight. We could talk about the realities of eternal security. We could talk about predestination and foreknowledge. We could talk about election. But tonight, in the, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about this subject or this topic of assurance. Uh, now, let me just, not telling you this so that you will say, Great, I'm glad I can go on lacking in assurance or having my assurance waver. I'm not saying this, what I'm getting ready to say for that reason at all. But at one point or another, whether it's happened to you in the past or it's going to happen to you tomorrow, we will all struggle with the assurance of our salvation at some point in our Christian life. It is a reality that either... Sometimes it comes right after a person is converted. Other times it comes at seemingly an unexpected time. Uh, some people have even said that they had been saved a number of years and suddenly they began to have questions about their salvation. Uh, they had things begin to creep into their minds. Uh, doubt creeps in. Uh, most times when people are struggling with assurance, now it may not be framed this way in your mind, but the question is, am I truly the Lord's? Am I truly the Lord's? Am I truly one of God's children? And so I do want to at least in some way, again, not comfort so that you'll continue in this, because I do not believe that we should continue to struggle with our assurance, but that I do want to comfort you in saying just because you are struggling with it does not mean that you are not a child of God. I would also tell you that just because you have some doubts does not mean that you are an unconverted person. So the reality here is tonight is we can find ourselves struggling with our assurance. Again, we can find ourselves being distracted so much that the doubts begin to creep in that we honestly become paralyzed in our walk with God. I have dealt with people in the past 
who have become so paralyzed by the doubts that have crept into their heart and in their mind that they literally come to a dead stop. They do not know where else to go. They do not know what else to do. They begin asking questions like this. Uh, do, I need to, uh, do I need to be saved again? And that's the question I've had it asked. Do I need to be saved again? And of course, my response to them is, is you can't be saved again. You either were saved or you weren't saved. You can't be saved again. Oftentimes, those doubts will leave people to say something like this. Well, maybe if I was just rebaptized, that would settle everything for me. There are very few times when I have ever counseled someone to be rebaptized. I could count on one hand how many times, and that was just because I really believe that when I talked with this person, they came to the conclusion, I am not saved. They, they, I, I am not saved. And so there was a proceeding in that. But we do need to understand that doubt is not uncommon. And it's also, I wouldn't say, it's not abnormal. Uh, it is not something that Christians at some point or another, uh, it's not uncommon for them to struggle with this doubt. Now, let me also say this. Doubt does not automatically mean that something's wrong with your walk as a Christian. However, what we're going to do tonight by introducing this subject is that there are, I think, some very specific reasons why assurance we begin to doubt and why we begin to doubt our salvation. Again, we're entering into something tonight that we're not going to be able to cover every avenue of this. Tonight will be a little bit different because we're not going to do as much exposition of the text as we will next week. We're going to get into each one of these verses but I want to lay a foundation tonight about this, this question about why is it lost. And really what we're looking at tonight is assurance lost and assurance gained. If I've lost my assurance, how do I gain that back? What are some of the reasons I may be doubting? Are these doubts because of something that I'm doing? Are these doubts because of something I'm not doing? What I think you're going to see tonight, and I think even as, as some of the, the indications are in 1 John chapter 2, there are some very confident statements. Uh, for example, verse 3 tells us, and hereby we do know that we know him. Now, I have no doubt in my mind, you can 100% without any doubt in your mind, be 100% certain of your conversion and your salvation and know it. You can know that you know him. It would not be in the Holy Scriptures if it was not possible. Now you'll notice that he says that we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. You see these grand theological words like if. You see, there's a lot of us that times in our life when our assurance has begun to waver, it's because something's not right in our walk. Something's not right in the way we're living. Something's gone sideways, if you will. So let's deal with this idea of the loss of our assurance as our first heading. Why would we ever lose assurance as believers and followers of Christ? 
Well, there's a couple different reasons I'm going to mention tonight, and we're going to expound on these more over the next few weeks. Uh, beginning there again, and we're just going to read through these verses, and then we're going to, get, we're going to dig into them deeper uh, next week. Notice verse 1, it says, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. Now, you've got to keep in mind that that phrase comes right on the heels of what's been said in 1 John chapter 1 where it says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You remember, sometimes these chapter divisions uh, make our minds shut off and think, okay, that's an ending thought. This carries right in. So the fact if we say we have no sin, right? If we say we have no sin, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, I notice this, the end of, verse, of chapter 1 tells us, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Then he says, if any man sin, we have an advocate. Now, we already know the answer to the question, do we sin? Of course we do. We sin, we all fall short of the glory of God. If we sin, we have an advocate. Now, we're going we're gonna to expand on that advocacy of Christ next week. But we have an advocate. That means we have someone representing us. That's the simple terms about advocacy. With the Father, that means we have someone who stands before the Father speaking on our behalf. It's very similar to a, a, a person who represents another person in the courtroom. They are speaking on our behalf. Who is that? Jesus Christ, and don't miss this, the righteous. Righteous means to be perfect and without sin, without blemish, without spot. He is standing as our advocate before the Father. He is the propitiation. That's the appeasement. He is the appeasing sacrifice. For his sins? No, for our sins. An advocate, the appeasing sacrifice, standing before the Father for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now it brings us back to verse 3. Hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. Again, I'm going to give you three reasons tonight, just three. There's, there could be more. But three reasons why I think and we see keeping his commandments can affect our loss of our assurance. Number one, we may lose our assurance when we neglect the means of grace that God has given us. What are the means of grace? The ways in which God extends and teaches and shows us who he is. The primary way he does that is through the preaching of the word. That is the primary way in which God speaks to us. Preaching is the preaching of the word. The preaching of the doctrines of this book. Not the preaching of man's philosophy, but the preaching of the word. That is a means of grace. It is by grace that we actually hear the truth, the word. We neglect the preaching. You say, how do I neglect the preaching? You can neglect the preaching of God's word, even sitting while the word's being preached. You could have failed to prepare your heart when you came to the church meeting house. You see, we're not just supposed to show up at church and then say, okay, I'm ready. It's seven o'clock. Preach or preach. You've got one hour. Preach. 
but then I'm going home. There should have been a preparation before you ever got here. There should have been a prayer that God speak to me through the Word. There's a preparation for worship. The church is not like going, and pardon this crude expression, it's not like going to the grocery store where you go in, get what you need, and then go out. There should have been a preparation for your, of your heart today. And that we can neglect the preaching by maybe we get distracted. We may get distracted by different things. It may be different things going on in our mind. We all have things to do, right? There's nobody in this room that's not busy. Every one of you are making a sacrifice, in a sense, to be here tonight. Now, I don't think any time that God's Word is being preached and the church can gather together, I don't think it's a sacrifice to be there. I really don't. We sacrifice for many things. But to neglect the preaching of the Word, to not be prepared, to not uh, be, be ready to receive, we neglect the beauty of worship together. Now some would say, when they come into a place like ours, they would say, Where's, when's the worship start? The whole service is worship. The whole, the whole concept of the church gathered together for the preaching and the singing of the Word, that is worship. We can neglect that. We can say, I, I don't need worship today. How about our own neglect, neglecting of our own prayer life? If we neglect prayer, we're neglecting one of the means of grace. The reading of God's Word on our own. It's not enough for you just to hear the Scripture being read during our services. There should be an intentional reading of God's Word by yourself to study. You know, God has given us these things to help our walk. You realize that, right? God, God's given us not so they would be a heavy burden to us to say, oh, I have to go listen to the preaching. I have to read the words. I, I have to pray. These are means that are helping you. And should be the very things in which you look forward to. I mean, it, we should be, I can't wait to pray. We should pray without ceasing, the Bible says, which means we're always in a spirit of prayer. We, shouldn't, we, we should not be able to wait to read the Scriptures. To gather together with the saints. These are all things that are affecting our walk. They're affecting our assurance. To neglect these things and then expect God to bless our lives really is counter, it's a counterproductive exercise, is it not? I wonder why I don't feel close to the Lord, but I neglect the means that God has given me to help me and edify me. You know, I've said this before, and I don't know, I don't know if it goes over well, but I'm not, I'm not trying to be ugly about this. But oftentimes we, we get into a struggle and a trial in our life. And you know the first thing we do? We stop going to church. Church is too tough. Church is too hard right now. This is the very means in which God has given us to encourage your spirit and encourage your soul. We neglect the medicine that God gave to us. And then we wonder, well, why, why, do I feel, why do I feel unsaved? Why do I feel uncertain? Why do I feel unsteady and wavering all the time? 
That's just the neglect of the very things which God has given us. Being in the house of the Lord whenever the church is there is vital. And I'm not saying that because I, I need a crowd. I'm not saying that because we need to have crowds of people. I'm saying, folks, as your pastor, I'm telling you that this is one of the greatest privileges you have is to be able to assemble in corporate worship to hear the word of God preach and to worship together. Don't neglect it. But if you neglect it, then then wonder, why do I feel, why does God feel so far away? You know, these things, you know, think about who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. He has stood and he stands there in, in, as our mediator before the Father. So we can lose our assurance when we neglect the means of grace. Number two, and again, he goes through and, and beginning in verse four, he says, he that saith, I know him. And again, we're going to expound on these much deeper next week and keepeth not his commandments. You see, there's a pattern here. If you keep his commandments, if we don't keep his commandments, he that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments. What's the scripture say? Is a liar. So to say, I know him. I know Christ, but I have no desire to keep his commandments. Biblically speaking says, you're a liar. You don't know him. Because you'd keep his commandments. And the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. There's a lot of confident statements that are being made here that are based upon the righteousness of Christ, not upon our confidence in ourselves, but the confidence we have in Christ. So, secondly, we can lose our assurance because of unrepentant sin in our life. I would ask you very directly again, I'm not saying these things to try to point fingers or to try to be harmful or to hurt you. I'm simply asking the question. When is the last time you sorrowed over your own sin? And I'm not talking about just kind of saying, you know, I really shouldn't do that. I'm talking about sorrow for your sin. I'm talking about being brought to a place where you see sin for what it really is. And you see that sin is an abomination to God. And how dare would I want to walk in unrepented sin? Because it shouldn't be, that should not be the walk of a child of God who knows Christ. We can lose our assurance. You continue to walk with, your, with unrepentant sin in your life. Sin, by its very definition, separates us from God. Now, the only reason, if you're a Christian tonight, the only reason you're not separated from God now is because Jesus Christ paid for your sins. He died for your sins. He bridged that gulf between you and he. But sin separates. So you realize tonight that if you're walking in unrepentant sin, you're walking as if you're still separated from God. John Owen has a tremendous book about mortifying the flesh. He uses words like killing it. Not soothing it so that it goes away. He talks about mortifying the flesh and killing it. If you ever stop to think about, you know, my, my sin actually disgusts me. 
You see, these are all things that if we're not repenting and we're walking that way, you know, we, we could read Romans 5 tonight. We can't read it in its entirety, but you can see that Romans 5 gives us the definition of what it is to be separated from God because of sin. It reminds us that we are under the curse of Adam, that when Adam fell, we fell, right? We were born with this imputed guilt. It's what separates us from a holy God. But now we're in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ Jesus, the last thing you should want to do is to walk in unrepented sin. Folks, you might be sitting here tonight and you know right now in your heart you have sin you have not repented of. You know it's vile. You know it's horrible. You know that it's disgusting to God. And yet you will let it keep going. It's like, it's like leaving a rattlesnake in the room with you and say, I'm just, I'll deal with that later. You got to kill it. You got to mortify it. You cannot walk in unrepented sin and then and then ask the question, why am I struggling with my salvation? Because you're walking like you were walking prior to salvation. You're walking like you're still separated. You see what's happening here? It's going to create doubt. Number three, we may also lose our salvation. And this is different than number two. It sounds very similar, but we may lose our assurance if we as Christians go back to living the way that is characterized by separation from God. How can you expect to be assured of God's grace if you're walking and living like the lost world? Folks, I know it, it can come across from preachers as meddling. But I'm telling you, there are things that we as Christians allow in our life that shouldn't be there, and it's contributing to the reason why you're struggling with your assurance is because you are feeding that flesh that you won't kill. And if you won't kill that flesh and you keep feeding it, what's it going to do? It's like feeding a fire. It's going to keep getting bigger. It's going to keep getting larger. And if you don't kill it, but you keep feeding it, your assurance is going to sink right with it. The whole book of 1 John talks about the difference between what it was, what you once were, and now what you should be. I mean, later on, we read it tonight and we'll cover it in a couple weeks. He specifically says, love not the world. Question has to be, do you love the world more than you love the Lord? What is the world? He says, it is the lust of, and notice what he says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And you say, do you know how hard it is to not walk with the world? Yeah, I walk in the same world you do. I'm confronted with the same problems and the same temptations that you are. I don't live in an isolated spiritual bubble. I have my own sin I have to deal with. I have my own times when I have to kill the flesh and say, no, I'm not doing that. Say, wait, everybody else is doing it. I'm not doing that. I will tell you this. It will separate. It'll separate you from people. When you start taking a stand that's contrary to the world, you're going to lose friends quick. 
You're going to lose the fringe Christians who are just kind of hanging on, who say, listen, I want all the blessings of God, but I don't want to have to live a life that's separated and a life that's different. You're going to struggle with your assurance. You're going to keep struggling with it. Because you can't have your hands in both. You can't be in the world and you can't be in the Lord. You've got to live in this world, but you don't have to live like it. There's a, there's a big difference. Again, that's going to be another whole message when we even get to that. But we shouldn't expect to have God's blessing on our life if we're walking sinfully. We're walking the way we used to walk. We're not repenting of sin. But yet then we're wondering, what's wrong with my salvation? Why did my, where'd my assurance go? Remember, all these things. Now again, if you're truly in Christ, you're not losing your salvation. You're losing your assurance. There's a big difference. I've, I've dealt with people over the years who they come to the place where they say, listen, I know, I, I know I'm saved, but I am not living right. I, am, I, am, I have been doing my own thing. I'm going my own way. They knew that they had made the decisions that put them in the place they were. It wasn't that God's salvation was faulty. It wasn't that there's a problem with the plan of salvation. And you realize what a lot of people do instead of admitting that I'm walking in sin and I'm unrepenting, they say, well, maybe I didn't pray right. That's just, a, that's another tactic to avoid what the real problem in the room is. The problem is, is you won't kill sin. That's what the problem is. <laughs> the problem has nothing to do with, did I get saved right? Did I do it right? That, that's already telling you an indication that if you think you didn't do it right, you didn't do anything anyway. Christ did it. That's what this whole chapter is about. Him being the advocate and the propitiation. The propitiation means he is completed the finished work. He didn't do 90% of it and you filled in the blanks with 10. He finished the work of your salvation. Your assurance is not based upon you. Your assurance is based on the finished work of Christ. And we're all thankful for that. Because when we start walking contrary to his word and walking in sin and doing what we want, we realize, wow, this is not what I should be. It's admitting to that. It's coming to the place of conviction. Oftentimes, and, and again, it's happening in our modern contemporary church. And again, I don't have one church in mind. I'm just telling you, we have this new idea that God does not become displeased with his people. That suddenly, people are using grace as a license to sin. Paul talked about it. It's a 21st century problem as much as it is a 1st century problem. There are people all over this world that are saying, listen, I'm saved by grace, so I'll do whatever I want to do. Then I would say, you've never been saved by grace. If that's your attitude to say, I can do whatever I want to do when I want to do it because God saved me. No true child of God uses grace as a license to sin. Period. Nobody does that who's truly a child of God. They don't do it. You say, well, no. Now, it doesn't mean you won't sin, but you're never going to use God's grace as a license to do it. Paul would say if he was standing here, God forbid that that would ever be the case, that I would use 
The marvelous, unbelievable grace of God is a license to keep living like I want. God does become displeased with His children. In Hebrews 12, verse 7, we know it says, If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. He's chastening you. God's not going to allow us to just continue to live. We can displease God. Now let's understand something, that even though God becomes displeased with us, His eternal love for us never stops. This is one of those amazing things about God. No matter, Even when we stray and do what we're not supposed to do, His love doesn't change. He doesn't love us less, just like He can't love you more. He doesn't love you more when you walk according to His commandments and then love you less when you don't. But to teach that he, you cannot displease God, that's not scriptural. The Bible is filled with circumstances and situations and narratives of when God's people displeased Him, there were consequences to that. Sin still has consequences. It always has and it always will. We see it time and time again. Even, again, we could say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. We see how he was, he was just a, a he, he, he really hated sin in the Old Testament. He hates sin in the New Testament just as much as he hated it in the Old. There are, there are accounts in the Old Testament, of course, that make us say, wow, that God must really hate sin by what he did and the action that he took. He still hates it. There is no sin in your life that God is okay with. There's no sin in your life that God is looking at and saying, well, it's not so bad. Sin is sin and He hates it. He detests it. Now, if you're in in Christ and you're a child of God, you're not going to lose that. But why would we want to walk contrary to the grace of God? Again, all of these things are affecting our assurance. So we can lose it. Number two, the gain of our assurance. How do we gain? Well, some of these things are exactly opposite of what the reasons why we lost it are. Right? Obviously, we would come to the conclusion that we should not neglect the means of grace. We should not be unrepentant of our sin. And we certainly, if we're walking in a way that we used to walk, stop it. Stop walking that way. Stop putting your hand in the fire and wondering, why do I keep getting burned? At some point, you learn, don't touch it. At some point, you learn, don't touch the stove. The stove is on. It's going to burn you. Stop playing with sin. And then wonder, I keep playing with sin and I keep struggling with my assurance. They seem to go hand in hand because they do. But how do we gain it? Well, I was looking this week, and it's interesting that in our confession in chapter 18, which is a whole chapter that deals with, and we, we covered this, it's been a while ago. I'm not going to read it all, but it's in chapter 18. That's an entire chapter that's, that is devoted to the assurance of grace and salvation. And in the first paragraph, listen to what this says. It says, although temporary believers and other unregenerate men, now notice, notice how that begins. 
Temporary believers and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and in a state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish. Now, very clearly, there are those that will deceive themselves into believing that they have the favor of God. Jesus himself in Matthew 7 is one of the, the footnoted references there that talks about not all that say, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom. They are not all believers. But it goes on to say, yet such as truly believe. Notice there's a difference. Temporary believer, right? And then those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. Now, we've talked about 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. If you go over to 1 John 3, verse 14, notice how these truths in the confession play out in biblical scripture, which is where we want to get it from, right? 1 John 3, verse 14. We know, there that word is again, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Drop down to verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Verse 20. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence towards God. And then verse 24, and he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him and he in him and hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given us. Now there's a little bit of a clue there. Our assurance comes from he who abides in us, which is the Holy Spirit of God. My assurance comes from God. So we see that this is, we can be certainly assured. That last phrase is, which hope shall never make them ashamed. The footnoted reference takes us to Romans 5. Again, I mentioned this earlier. There's no way we can read through all this tonight, but Romans 5 verse 2 says, By whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 5, And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So we see here that this assurance is coming from the Spirit. But going along with what we're seeing in 1 John chapter 2, which again we're going to expound on more deeply next week, this displays what, true Christian, what a true Christian walk looks like. Now, what is, the, what is the very foundation of a Christian? They believe in Jesus Christ and they believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. They believe in the biblical definition of salvation. That's the starting point. 
But we cannot miss the reality that those that are in Christ, they obey His commandments. And they do, in fact, endeavor to walk in a way that pleases God. It would be almost arrogance to say, I am a child of God, but I have no desire to please God in my walk. They go hand in hand. If I have no desire to please the Lord, do I really know Him? It's a natural outflow of what's happened to me. I am, I am going to want to please God above all else. I'm going to want to please God over pleasing myself, over the applause of men. I want to please God. You see, we can have a certain assurance that we belong to Him. We have the evidence. We know Him. The Bible says we can know Him. The Spirit testifies that we know Him. So we can gain it. Thirdly, what is the ground of this assurance? Now, this is where we got to be very careful. And this is, again, I think where people get themselves in a little bit of trouble. We have to be careful that our assurance is not only grounded in the evidence that we produce. What I mean by that is, is we can show evidences of something and we can get caught up in the fact my evidence is my assurance. My fruit is my assurance that I'm in Christ. Your assurance is not based upon the fruit that is being produced. Your assurance is in the inward work of the Spirit. What the Holy Spirit has done in you, not in your works. Now again, faith without works is dead. There's no question about that. But you've got to be careful that your assurance is not based upon your works. Does everybody understand what I mean? There's a difference there. I, I, can, I can show a lot of fruit, a lot of evidence, and if I'm not careful, I'll start putting my assurance and my hope in the things that I do instead of what John is telling us. Our assurance is not in the fruit. It's in the finished work of Christ. That's where my assurance is. You're never going to feel like you've done enough. I have watched, again, I'm not that old, but I have watched people kill themselves, over the, tire themselves, trying to think that's the only way I'm going to assure myself that I'm really in Christ by how much I can do. That's not where your assurance, because you'll never get there. You will never be able to do enough that'll say, now I'm assured. What John is writing about here is he's saying, look, your, your, your assurance is in the appeasing sacrifice of Christ. It's in the finished work of salvation that was accomplished on the cross of Calvary, not in the fruits, not in the evidences. Now, will true conversion show itself? Absolutely it will. You say, look, I'm, I'm a child of God, but you have absolutely no fruit in your life. You have reason to be concerned. Right? Especially if you're using grace as a license to sin. You have every reason in the world to doubt your salvation if you have no fruit in your life. You're going to show evidence of it. Are you going to be perfect? Absolutely not. Are you never going to sin again? Absolutely not. Again, in the confession, 
If we go on to the second paragraph, it says, this certainly is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith. The only infallible assurance of faith I have is in what Christ Jesus has done. See, if my hope is in what I'm doing, it's fallible. Just like if my hope is in my, what I've done to earn my salvation, that's fallible. But notice it goes on. It says, this is, but an infallible assurance of faith founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. And also upon the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit unto which promises are made. And on the testimony of the Spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, and as a fruit thereof, keeping the heart both humble and holy. Now there's a number of verses that are given here as these, these footnoted texts. Uh, Hebrews 6 is one of them that... that gives us some of the background on how this is an infallible assurance of faith. Uh, Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 11. And he says that, And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Okay? So you see very closely here, he's telling us that our strong consolation, our strong hope is in the fact of the promises that God has made. Okay? Assurance comes down to believing the promises of God. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, not might be saved, will be saved. They will be saved. Don't get all caught up in the argumentative spirit about, well, what do you mean by whosoever? It means what it says. It doesn't matter who you are. If you call upon Christ as your means and only means of salvation, the promise is, by God, you will be saved. If He doesn't save you, God's a liar and you have every reason to distrust everything I just told you. Just that one promise alone if he does not hold true to that, he has never once turned away a person who called upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. He's never said, no, you can't come. Now again, don't get all caught up in the theology behind it and say, well, who's the whosoever? Look, people that say, you Reformed Baptists don't believe anybody can come. That absolutely is not true at all. 
That's why we give the free offer of the gospel no matter what stripe and part of life you come from. Whosoever calls. That's the anchor of the soul. Have you called upon Christ to save you? Are you trusting him alone for your salvation? Then believe the promises of God. Well, but what about? Folks, that's, that's what's adding to your lack of assurance as you're trying to add. Christ has paid it all. These are things that we are to be assured of. Now, does that mean that we just sit back and say, okay, I don't do anything? No, it's the exact opposite of that. Second Peter chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 4. We're going to hit a couple of these verses. Second Peter 1 verse 4 says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Peter goes on to write about things that we should be doing. He's writing to believers here. He's talking about people in verse 1 who are people who have obtained like precious faith. 2 Peter chapter 1 is not an evangelism passage. This are the things being told to what people who have obtained like precious faith should be doing. Verse 5. Beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, see it, Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. In no way, shape, or form, as he's saying, work out your own calling and your own election to salvation. He's saying, work out those things that are evidence of your calling and of your election. Notice the use of the word add. Add to. Add to these things. Ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly unto the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Wherefore, he says in verse 12, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. You see, the ground of our assurance rests and is completely in Christ's finished work. Period. That's where assurance is. We don't look to our works for our assurance. Our works are evidence that we have, that we are resting in Christ's finished work. You've got to be careful, again, that you don't make the assurance about the works that you do. You see, the reality is we look to Christ and the finished work on our behalf. He died so that we did not have to. Folks, don't ever lose sight of the fact that Jesus Christ, he who knew no sin, became sin for us. Every one of you deserve to be nailed on that cross. Every one of us deserve to die and pay the wages of our sin, which was death. 
but by his grace. But God, who is rich in mercy, saved us. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It is the gift of God. Your assurance is not found in what you add to it, what you can do. Your assurance rests in Christ's finished work. That's where our hope is. That's what we rest in. I don't rest in my good works. I rest in the finished work of Christ. Now there's inward evidence. Those evidence will come out in the works that are produced. So let me finish by saying this. This is not to say that our works have no value in the Christian life. Those works, again, are evidence to show are we really believing in the finished work of Christ? Or am I continuing to go from place to place trying to earn my way to heaven? See, the evidence, again, it's there to be a reminder. Am I really trusting in the finished work of Christ? It's always interesting, and again, I've never had anybody personally, you maybe have, I've never had a person who's a lost person who's unsaved, unconverted, look at me and say, what do I have to do to be saved? It's never happened to me that way, where someone says, what do I have to do? But you know that's what most people think. Every other religion in the world, every religion in the world is based upon what you do. Biblical Christianity is not. It's only religion in the world. Every other false god religion in the world is based upon what you do. We don't believe in what we do. We believe in what Christ Jesus has done. He finished it. The fruit is the evidence that we are trusting and resting in his finished work. Any one of us can say, I believe the gospel. But true conversion shows itself. 1 John 2, 3 says, those who know him, they obey his commandment. James 2 very clearly shows us that faith without works is dead. Simply claiming you have faith isn't enough. There's going to be evidence. But what does John say? We can know. We can be assured of. We can be assured that we know him if we obey him, if we obey the commandments. That's simply evidence giving us assurance. Ultimately, our assurance comes from Christ and the Holy Spirit testifies. Now folks, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this to you tonight as lovingly as I can say it. I have, a, I have absolutely positively, and this is not because I'm living a perfect life, because I've had seasons and I've had valleys, I've had moments, I've had doubts, I've had doubts as a pastor. Times in my life when my assurance was wavering. And I can tell you, as transparently as I can, my assurance problems were based on me. Not someone else's fault. They were based on my choices, what I was choosing to do, and every single time it's because I was not willing to kill the flesh. Folks, it is the number one reason why your struggle with assurance is most likely because you're allowing sin to reign and you're allowing it to rule. And the problem is, again, let's be honest, 
we love sin. There are times we flat out love it. How do we know we love it? Because we won't want to give it up. We won't want to kill it. Listen, I, I guarantee you, if a rattlesnake comes in my house, that thing's not living. But we will let sin in the front door. We'll let sin get as close as we want to. We'll let our kids play with a little bit of sin. We'll let our families play a little bit of sin. We don't want to kill it. And then we wonder, why am I struggling with whether am I really a child of God or not? Because you're trying to live like someone you're no longer. That's really what it comes down to. Now again, I have to rest in the finished work of Christ and I have to say, He completed my salvation. But folks, our eyes have to be on Christ and Him alone for our finished work. We have to rest in Him. Listen, maybe you have come to that place where, look, you're, like, you're, you're not allowing unrepented sin. You're, you're doing everything you can to walk according to the ways of God. Listen, you've still got that old man in you. Romans 7, the Apostle Paul, we, we reference it all the time. The Apostle Paul had a struggle with sin in his own life. He said, I, can't, I don't do the things I should do. I do the things I don't want to do. But he never was once saying, I'm losing my salvation. There's still the difference between losing your salvation and losing your assurance. So tonight, if you're resting in Christ Jesus alone, rest in that. But if you're dabbling in sin, you're neglecting the means of grace, you're doing the things, folks, repent of that and make them right. Make it right. Repent of it now. So I'll do with that later. No, repent of it now. Nobody has to know what's going on in your heart. But it's something we need to consider and deal with. So remember, our ground of assurance rests in Christ's finished work. I trust we'll take... The Word of God and the Spirit in which it's given, what God is attempting to do with us by reminding us of these precious promises, and that we'll rejoice in what He's done for us. Now let's pray.